Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, international editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show, Airbus's new boss takes over as the company looks set to fly high. Never before have they ever sold so many planes. And the global remittance market. Just how much can startups disrupt the industry? So you had a lot of new startups launching at the beginning of the decade, but the market has concentrated since. But first, around the world, the independence of central banks is looking fragile. Central bankers' job of setting monetary policy free from political concerns is at risk. And the role of central banks looks ever more important, as the IMF has just downgraded its forecast for global growth, with the euro area expected to see a notable deceleration. In America, President Donald Trump has announced his intention to nominate two of his ardent political supporters to the board of the Federal Reserve. One is the former boss of Godfather's Pizza, Herman Cain, who, like Mr Trump, has been a vocal critic of the Fed. Our economics columnist, Ryan Avent, considers the reasons behind Herman Cain's nomination. To the extent that that Herman Cain has talked about monetary policy in the past, he hasn't necessarily come across as a person with the kind of beliefs that Trump would like. You know, Trump gets angry when the Fed does things that are perceived to be slowing economic growth. You know, that makes sense. It's better for his political numbers if if the economy is growing strongly. Uh, Herman Cain in the past has come out as a supporter of returning to the gold standard, an old-fashioned sort of idea, something that economists almost uniformly believe would make economic performance much worse. The gold standard was... uh, big reason why the Great Depression was as bad as it was. In that sense, it's kind of a mystery. But I think the supposition is that Herman Cain, in the modern Republican political context, is first and foremost a party guy. And he would owe his loyalty to Donald Trump. And whatever monetary decisions were going to benefit Mr. Trump, I think the assumption would be that Mr. Cain would vote for those. In Europe, there might be some horse trading to fill posts at the ECB. Three of the six strong executive board depart this year. Most notably, the president, Mario Draghi, and its chief economist, Peter Pratt. So who will be at the helm, and in what direction are they headed? Economics correspondent Rachna Schamburg is writing about this. Hello, Rachna. Hi, Simon. So... What exactly is changing at the top of the ECB? There's some quite big changes this year. Mario Draghi steps down in October. Peter Pratt, the chief economist, leaves next month. And on top of that, we will see eight of the 19 national central bank governors who also have a say in the ECB's monetary policy leaving as well. The head of the bank's supervisory arm is only two months into the job, so it's a lot of churn at the top, particularly at a time when the economy isn't doing so well. It's a big change. Now, I suppose most of us will remember Mario Draghi as the man who famously promised to do whatever it takes to save the euro during the eurozone crisis. But institutionally, what will his legacy be? Well, 
he's greatly admired at the bank and everybody that I spoke to only had praise for him. One person I spoke to compared him to George Washington as he was sort of the saviour of the monetary union. What has he done for the institution? As you sort of hinted with the whatever it takes statement, I think he interpreted the ECB's mandate in quite a broad way in terms of what needs to be done to achieve price stability. And I think that might be something that has affected the institution as a whole. I've heard also that he places great value on communication and he thinks very much about communication as part of the overall policy strategy. And that's something that was quite successful in terms of the way in which the ECB's announcements have been met by financial markets and journalists. So I think that's probably the way in which he's changed the ECB. Now, clearly, his replacement is the most important. But do the others have policy implications as well? Well, the ECB tends to operate on consensus. So the other people around the table do matter as well. The chief economist appointment is quite important because they have a role in setting the agenda and setting the sort of policy options that might be discussed. Peter Pratt's um, replacement has already been announced. It's Philip Lane, who is the governor of the Irish Central Bank, very well qualified for the role and academic, very much admired and known sort of dovish views, I think. So that might influence the direction of the bank. But absolutely, it's the president that matters the most. And I suppose more broadly, the Eurozone is not in crisis anymore, but it's hardly in rude health. So that also must be a big worry for the incoming leaders. You're right. The economy hasn't been doing very well. It's been slowing since early 2018. And what was thought to be a soft patch seems to be continuing for longer than the ECB would like. They've already changed their policy stance. They were talking about raising interest rates a few months back. Now they've promised to keep interest rates on hold until the end of the year at least. And so the new president may well have to think creatively about how to loosen policy at a time when interest rates are rock bottom and large scale asset purchases have already been conducted. So around the world, as we've said, we're seeing central banks facing threats to their independence from political leaders, wanting them to make policy with political ends in mind. Does the ECB face similar pressures? The ECB is quite different compared with other central banks. Um, It doesn't have a counterpart fiscal or political entity that is sort of parallel to the ECB. Its independence is famously written in international statutes, so it can't be very easily altered. It requires um, unanimous agreement among member states. So in that sense, it's not facing threats to its independence in the way that perhaps the Reserve Bank of India is or the um, Central Bank of Turkey is. The issues around politics in the ECB, I suppose, are more to do with the design of the monetary union itself, and some might say the flaws of the monetary union, which mean that these sort of political divisions between member states exist and appear in the ECB as well. Actually, thanks very much. Thank you, Sam. And you can read more about this story in this week's issue of The Economist. You can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for £12 or $12. Next, the European aerospace giant Airbus is expected to welcome a new chief executive later this week. Guillaume Fauri takes the controls as the company overcomes recent turbulence and picks up significant speed. At the end of March, Airbus signed a $35 billion deal to supply aircraft to China. And recent air disasters have hit its biggest competitor hard. I spoke with our Schumpeter columnist Henry Trix, who's written on the story for this week's Economist. So, Henry, this must be a pretty good time to take over. Boeing's reeling. Airbus must be in a position to profit from that. 
Certainly, he takes over at a time when Airbus is in a stronger position financially than it's been in for quite a while. His predecessor, Tom Enders, did a lot of good in terms of putting Airbus back on an even keel. A month or two ago, the company announced plans to drop production fully of its big A380 plane, which had been an albatross around its neck for quite a long time. And though no one, least of all Airbus, is going to express anything but woe over air disasters, there is no doubt that the struggle that Boeing now faces with its 737 MAX is going to play to the strengths of Airbus, which is its single-aisle plane, the competitor to the 737 MAX, the A320neo, which is just going from strength to strength. Though let's go back to that A380, which you mentioned. You said it had become an albatross around Airbus's neck. But wasn't it the company's big hope at one point? It had been the company's big hope, but it was a misplaced hope because they bet on a change in air travel more towards very long distance planes with five or six hundred people in them rather than the smaller point to point traffic that Boeing bet on. And that proved to be a bad bet. But really, The fight between Boeing and Airbus over the last five or six years has been all about these single-aisle planes, the A320 and the 737 MAX. Never before have they ever sold so many planes. The margins are pretty high. It's been an incredible duel between the two companies. So the grounding of the 737 MAX is going to pose some interesting questions for Airbus as to what is its future strategy. Henry, sitting here in London, this week of all weeks, I have to ask you about Brexit. Airbus is, I suppose, the quintessential cross-border EU company. Mr Enders intervened in the debate himself quite a bit. We focus here on the danger Brexit poses to jobs in Britain for Airbus. Does it also pose a danger to Airbus itself? Yes, that's the reason I think why Tom Enders was probably the most outspoken industrialist about the risks of Brexit, especially a no-deal Brexit, because Airbus definitely sees the problem of supplies being disrupted around the EU. And you have to remember that Airbus has its manufacturing system distributed right the way around. So the wings, for example, are made here in the UK and other parts of the plane are made in Toulouse and other parts in Germany and Hamburg. The interesting question really is if there is a disruption as a result of Brexit, let's hope there isn't, but if there is a really serious disruption, what does Airbus then do? Does it then move its manufacturing facilities out of the UK to Europe or does it then move them more to the US where it's developing its manufacturing facilities after having bought Bombardier or does it take them to China? So there is a sense, I think, that it may use Brexit as an excuse, if you like, to further globalize its manufacturing operations rather than, as I guess many Europeans would hope, move it even more concentrated to Germany and France. I was going to ask you about China, in fact. I mean, I hadn't heard that they might actually move some manufacturing capability there, but presumably that is the one market above all on which their future hinges. Yes, absolutely. Airbus's predictions for passenger jets 
out into the 2030s foresees Asia as being a bigger market than the US and Europe combined. So they definitely see lots of opportunities out there in terms of the sales of their aircraft, as does Boeing. One of the reasons why you would want to put more manufacturing there is simply because we live in this strange geopolitical era in which trade tensions can flourish at any particular time, borders can be closed. So if you're within inside the Chinese border, you are more insulated from those kind of pressures. So I think we will see Airbus certainly leading the charge into China over the medium term. Henry, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Finally, in developing countries like Haiti and Nepal, cross-border money transfers are equivalent to a quarter of GDP. And this year, remittance flows are expected to reach more than $550 billion worldwide. That's more than the total of global foreign direct investment flows. Yet, the global giants that dominate the remittance industry continue to charge what look like exorbitant transfer fees. Hope has emerged in the form of fintech firms like TransferWise and Remitly, who aim to cut fees by outsmarting banks and bureaus. But can startups like TransferWise really cut through complex pricing systems to offer fair rates. Mathieu Favre writes on finance and economics for The Economist. He's covered the global remittance industry for this week's edition. So Mathieu, what sort of costs can consumers expect to pay when sending money across borders? So it varies a lot depending on how you send the money and where you send it to and where you send it from. But typically, the World Bank estimates that this costs average 6 still, which is more than double the target that the Sustainable Development Goals have set for 2030. But it can be much more than that. So if you send money from South Africa to Nigeria via bank transfer, it's more than a quarter of your money that that goes away. That really is extortionate. And how much are those costs concealed in the exchange rate? And how much is it an upfront payment of a commission on the amount of money transferred? Yeah, it's a very good question. That's one of the main issues in cross-border transfer is that the price is rarely transparent. Well, first of all, at the best of time, it's pretty hard to understand because it's, it, as you say, it blends a commission and an exchange rate margin. And generally, money transfer companies play with a bit of both. Some of them will say that it's commission-free, there's no commission, but they will take a big margin on exchange rate. And sometimes it's the contrary, right? And it's not always advertised exactly what the margin is going to be on the rates. And therefore, consumers are sometimes confused. And how do they seek to justify these huge fees? Well, they say something that is actually fair. They play an essential role in the market. I mean, it would be very hard without them to reach you know, very remote regions in South Sudan, in a variety of dangerous or difficult places to reach. So they say that to do that, it costs money. You have to invest to build you know, a network of agents on the ground. You need to make sure that the cash to transport is secure. And all this requires investments. So they, they say that basically costs are really high, so they have to pass them on. Mathieu, I understand you've been talking to one of the co-founders of TransferWise, Tavet Hinrichus. Uh, yes, so I spoke to Tavet for this piece, who f- co-founded TransferWise uh, eight years ago. And back then, he was living in London, and he was pretty shocked at the price of sending money back to Estonia. 
And so now, eight years later, the company is pretty big. So they handle about 36 billion of transfers a year. And they did that. They grew so fast thanks to the strategy. So the strategy was to basically lose the sort of smoke and mirrors approach that competitors use to hide the fees that they charge customers. What we decided to do is to be very transparent. Uh, so basically, we always make the exchange at the mid-market rate, and we show you the whole fee we quote. And the transparency thing has been really hard until now. Basically, everyone kind of has a fee- gnarly feeling that banks aren't doing me a favor. You know, banks often say, we do it for free. Like, you know, can't be for free. Like, it's got to be a catch somewhere. But given that most people are bad with percentage calculations, they don't know how the financial markets work, they have no way of understanding how much is the markup on the exchange rate. And that's where the whole game is. But you know, we've been teaching people for eight years, you have to ask about the markup, you have to compare how much money you receive, and we've also been talking to governments, to regulators. And now finally, I think the tide is starting to turn. I think it's, it is true that there is some disruption uh, and we see it a lot here in developed markets. So there's firms like TransferWise, which is you know, Revolut. They do very cheap cross-border transfers and that's, and that's true. And they've had a, a pretty big impact on, I guess, the, the higher volume corridors. But a number, on a number of other corridors, it's not the case. You know, costs have been falling for, at the beginning of the decade, between 2010 and 2014 maybe, costs were falling by a fifth, I think, on average. But then they plateaued. They've plateaued since then, and there are a number of reasons for that. The main reason is that there's not enough competition. Actually, that the fintechs are struggling to make a dance because the barriers of entry are quite high. So you had a lot of new startups launching uh, at the beginning of the decade, but the market has concentrated since. So if these big incumbents are, as it were, shrugging off the competition from these new entrants, what measures can be taken to? get the world somewhere towards that SDG's sustainable development goals that you cited at the beginning of 3%. So the three types of barriers to entry that actually governments and regulators can do quite a lot to alleviate or, or get rid of. Uh, the first one is the fact that these partnerships between national post office networks, for example, which are really useful to disperse the cash. In Africa and Southeast Asia, governments have understood that it's not a very good thing to have them, so they've opened them up. But in Western Europe, you still have some of these partnerships that exist. So these partnerships should be up and up, renegotiated, or if they can't be renegotiated, they should be let to expire. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, in fact, the fintechs, the startups, are suffering a lot from a more stringent application of anti-money laundering rules, which uh, started after the financial crisis. It's made compliance costs much higher for these firms, and the smaller you are, the harder it is to, to cope with them. The biggest impact is indirect, actually. It's the fact that banks are a bit wary of dealing with these money transfer firms. And the reason is because they don't want to be fined for letting dodgy, even tiny dodgy transactions, but dodgy transactions through, so they, don't, they take no risk. And my third point is about pricing. Pricing, because, as we said, the pricing is still opaque, and regulators should push uh, firms to be more transparent about them. Uh, Europe has taken an important step in that direction. So in December last year, I think, the European Commission signed a law that will force banks and firms to be more transparent about their fees from 2020. Having looked at the industry quite closely, Mathieu, how optimistic are you that prices will come down? And I suppose primarily we're most interested in the poorest users of these transfer systems. 
I think we have to be realistic. I think it will take time for the startups to really make a dent in the global market. I think it's really good on some of the big corridors that made a, a pretty big impact. I think on some of the, the toughest corridors, it's going to take much more time just because Western Union, MoneyGram, all, all the big firms, they have such an inbuilt advantage that they will retain, I guess, the edge. Mathieu, thank you very much. You're welcome, Sam. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.